journey of a Khalifa where I document my journey as a Khalifa. And I recently graduated from NYU in a master's of environmental peace building and am currently enjoying my life alhamdulillah. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know what a Khalifa means, could you explain like what that term means? Yeah, so in Arabic it means a successor what it means literally and I kind of I look at that definition kind of the way that Native Americans do the seven generations where you're supposed to act in a way that preserves life for seven generations which is kind of like you are the successor of these generations but I actually disassociate (laughs) almost completely from that definition and instead look at it as a way of defining my purpose and meaning of of um, pleasing Allah by doing whatever I can in the within my sphere of influence when I can when I'm able um, and when I have the option to. So it's it's um, a reminder that I made a covenant and that I have a responsibility and uh, a trust that Allah gave to me on this earth, not just the plants but the animals and the people around me and the community that I'm a part of, I have a responsibility to follow the Sharia and being a good and um, a good person and taking care of and cultivating the spaces that I'm in. Like I couldn't have defined it better myself, partly because I only have like an amorphous idea of what a Khalifa is, but that's a good, a great definition. So you said you have a master's in environmental peace building. A uh, peace building. So, what was your degree like? Wh- what did you major in when you were an undergrad? At- so, I, I did my undergrad in California in public policy, and I did that undergrad because I was interested in socioeconomic dichotomies that I was experiencing living in Orange County, where you have both low-income immigrant communities and also like the super super rich communities um, and I was able to go to um, a school that had a lot of resources because my mom was a caregiver and her very rich client uh, let her use their address um, so I was able to go to that school but lived in an immigrant community on the other side of town so I got to experience these dichotomies in addition to our home country of Morocco and America, and so I was just seeing a lot of injustice that I didn't injustice that I didn't understand, and wanted to understand how to change that, and so I did public policy in for my undergrad. So you basically you're the school you went to like before undergrad or the education you had, you had access to a lot more resources than the people in your own community? Well, by the time I I got to high school, the communities were mixed. But 
in elementary school, I had very formative experiences that made me realize that I was poor and that I was different and that there were others that had more resources than me, and I didn't understand that. But by the time I was in high school, it, it was it was a different situation in which those dichotomies kind of came together. But I did I did go through programs like oh what is it called? It's for it's for first generation um, college students. That really helped me because it helped me through like studying for the SAT, which I didn't know I had to do, um, and applying for colleges, which I got absolutely no direction from my parents because they'd never done that before. So um, it was it was very helpful to have that program. Um, so your high school, you're saying had it it wasn't the same education as elementary. No, it had it had similar, but it's just the community that like the students that went to the school were mixed versus when I was in elementary school, just white rich people. So I, yeah, the lived experiences were very different, and I'm saying that it, it was um, um I guess the main motivator or impetus for me to study public policy later on. Yeah, you went in knowing that you want to do public policy. Did you ever have moments where you thought to yourself, oh, maybe I want to change my major? Or was that your plan throughout undergrad, like to stay in public policy? Yeah, actually, public policy was my minor. Um, I was trying to be a nurse because my mom was a nurse and I saw that there's a lot of job security. And as a person that comes from a poor family, job security was really important for me, but also doing something that contributed to the well-being of people also mattered to me. So I thought being a nurse like my mom would be a great career to go into. So I kept, I didn't get into nursing the first time. um, So I did my minor in public policy and then I got into nursing the second time and wasn't able, wasn't able to continue after my second year for a number of reasons. And so I had to do public policy and I, I loved it. Um, but I was convinced that I had needed to be a nurse. And so that led me to a year of, um, I guess, self-exploration, which then led me to uh, a farm in Pomona where I learned about climate change and that kind of brought everything together, all my questions. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I feel I had a similar experience in undergrad where I came in thinking, oh, I want to be a writer, a journalist maybe, because I thought for some reason journalism was more serious than the writing I was thinking of. Because the kind of writing I wanted to do was like, oh, at the New Yorker, where you read those articles about like famous actresses who also had um, powerful scientific theories that no one knew about. Like, And so I thought, because people were telling me, oh, you can't have a job as a writer. So then my brain was like, my 17-year-old brain was like, oh, I'll be a journalist because you have to, people need to hear the news, right? You get paid to do that. Um, so like in high school or when I went to college, that was my plan to like major in English. And like like you, like strangely enough, it's not that um, I was getting turned off to English, but through like a series of events, um, the first of which was a class about writing that was like mandatory for all the freshmen, I guess, to learn how to write better. I don't know. And, um, I had to write a paper and we had to pick our subjects ourselves. And I was like, Oh, I have no idea what to write about. 
somehow came across a book by a journalist about a scientist. And then I was like reading this book is about the theory of smell or different theories of smell, how we smell like the Nobel prizes for sight and hearing have been given, but smell is still a, a mystery. Um, and it's incredible because we can smell anything instantaneously, but no other system in the body works like that. Like the immune system, the, the digestive system, the immune system can recognize a wide repertoire of invaders, but it takes time for it to build a response. The digestive system can recognize a limited repertoire of invaders, but it does it instantly, right? Like it doesn't need weeks <laughs> or days to respond to like, you know, the inputs. But the smell, the system of smell was incredible to me the way this book was describing it. It combines the best of both the immune system, which is critical for survival, and the digestive system, which is also critical for survival. Like it combines that fast response, but like that broad repertoire of inputs, right? Like there's one paper that says we can, humans can smell, uh, I think around one trillion molecules. And I was like, that's incredible. What other system in the body can detect one, a trillion. I think it was even saying like upwards of a trillion or a trillion was the upper limit, whatever in that range of molecules. And so like through a book, ironically, I got interested in science. And so like, that's how I entered the field of science was like through writing. Um, but like what you were saying about how you, for a variety of reasons, realized nursing is not going to be for you. And then you ended up in a farm in Pomona and that's how you got exposed to climate change. I mean, I find that like remarkable because I feel like that's, it's funny how, I don't know how like, the plans of our lives are written out. You don't like, I would never have would have, would have expected that I would end up in science because I thought science was like such a cold calculating emotionless field <laughs> when I was younger. And so like, I'm imagining you also never imagined like that climate change is something that you would end up being interested in. Right. Yeah. No, I never, I could never have thought of, I could never have imagined my life by myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after climate change, um, so yeah, you were on this farm in Pomona. And so like, what exactly happened on this farm where you realized, okay, I think I want to explore climate change. So Farmer Rishi, who everyone should follow on Instagram, um, was my teacher, him and his mom, um, zero waste farmer. And they, uh, in between doing things on the farm, like planting and, um, and pruning and, you know, and, and harvesting for their uh, CSA box, which is community supported agriculture box that they would, um, people would pay for and give out to communities, they would do our lessons. Um, and so I learned everything from the water system to the carbon cycle um, and just how messed up we've made it. And, um, just seeing how they explained these natural systems and how they've been manipulated through colonialization and through um, the creation of cities and urban design and um, through all these issues that are issues by themselves also affecting the environment. And so I, I've known about these issues. I know why they harm people, um, but I never considered that it was also doing things to the environment. And 
we look at the environment as really, you know, innocent. It doesn't try to harm anyone. Um, uh, and knowing, I guess, from my religion that we are, we are told to, you know, not to hurt anything, and yet here we are hurting things. Um, and, and for my part, unknowingly. So that was, that was where I, I started to connect the dots, or more of the dots started to be connected. I think not all the dots are still connected. There's still so much I'm learning. Um, but it, it started to come together there. And then when I went into my program, my master's program, I uh, originally went into peace building and then um, took a sustainability course and then kind of just went from there and combined it into a, a relatively new field that's called environmental peace building, which um, says that if we work on the environment together, we can also create stabilizing peace within our communities. Um, but also that if we harm the environment, it can also cause conflict and taught us about the ways that conflict should be viewed as an opportunity for transformation. So we don't call it conflict resolution anymore. We call it conflict transformation because it's an opportunity for growth, for stronger relationships. Um, and I, I really, I guess I re that resonated a lot with me and our relationship with the environment. And not just the environment, but people and the animals and everything around us needs a lot of growth. Um, and through growth, we can all grow stronger to grow together. Yeah, so I guess I'm interested. So you did environmental peace building. Why can't I say building? And um, is it because of Ramadan? Like, I can't say the word building. I don't... <laughs> Um, yeah, so sorry. Um, so yeah, I guess after your master's, you graduated from that program in 2018? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you faced, like, did you face, um, I mean, as soon as you graduated, were you immediately looking for work or like, can you describe a little bit how, like what you were facing after you graduated? Yeah, so I did my master's thesis. I had finished my coursework early so that I could spend my um, my thesis semester in Morocco doing thesis research. Um, so when I finished, when I when I graduated, I wanted to go back to Morocco to um, present my research and to see if anything could be done with it. Um, but also just as a break, it was also an Amazon during that time. And we wanted to celebrate our age as a family. So I went back to Morocco for a couple months and did not look for a job. I didn't look for a job. Like, and that's, that would be one of my main advices is, is, that, is that you should be looking for a job like after your first year in graduate school. Um, uh, and so I didn't look for a job until I came back to California. And I really I had to think about uh, what was important to me and what I valued, which was number one, family. I'd been away from my husband for two years. I'd been away from my family. Um, and I decided I wanted to stay in Orange County. And the, the subject that I studied and also the connections and networks I had built in New York City 
didn't really help me to find something in Orange County. Um, so I spent too long looking specifically only in Orange County and not broadening my horizons a little bit. Um, but now that I'm in Los Angeles, I have a few more opportunities that I've pursued um, that I'm excited to see where they go. But it's been a long, very hard and painful journey of understanding um, the lesson that I think unemployment has was was meant for me to learn. So what would you say, what would you say the worst part of unemployment is? Because honestly, I'm sure there's several people who can relate to <laughs> coming out of an education and being faced with no after no after no, or, you know, sometimes they won't even respond. They'll like lead you on. You'll go, you'll get to the interview stage and no response. Right. So can you describe like what you think the worst part of um, unemployment was for you or is? Um, cover letters. Cover letters. <laughs> <laughs> <It's laughs> the worst. Yeah, they really are. Um, but it's not, it's not the job hunt that's frustrating to me at all. It's the, it's the not, um, suddenly not doing anything, not being part of anything. Um, cause I also moved to a new city, so I, everything was new and um and i'm so used to being involved in everything and having my schedule completely packed with lots of purposeful work that i love um which was the reason why i i chose to go to um nyu is because i would be in new york city and there's a bajillion things to be involved with in new york city um so i went from from having stuff to do all day long to not. And that was that was really the hardest part. Um, yeah, it was really the hardest part for me. Yeah, I mean, it even, like, reminds me of this um, article in the New York Times that I saw by Adam Grant. I think he wrote the book Originals. Is that the title? I, yeah, I think I have that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, think yeah. I, saw that. I saw that on your Instagram, actually. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he also gave a TED Talk about, like, the power of, like, creative misfits and the power of being original. And even one thing I remember from that talk, he was saying how there was a study where um, they were trying to see, like, who who was creative, right? In the study, who, who could they define as a creative individual? And so they basically, like... I think gave the participants or the participants had um, laptops and like, I think Internet Explorer, like some default browser was on the laptop. And they found that the people who like realized this is inefficient, this is not working for me and like downloaded a new browser, like they found, they determined in some way or ways that those people were more creative because like he was saying creativity is realizing that you need to go against the status quo and like realizing when you need to go and need to go against it and how you need to go against it. Like, it's like this like defiance of the status quo. That's how he defined creativity. Um, but basically he had this article in the New York times about how, like about work and professionalism, right? Even there was this other article in the New York times, like called 
basically the point of it was why are we as a culture glorifying or over glorifying work like why has that taken such center stage (laughs) as like you know like maslow's hierarchy of needs and the top is self-actualization it seems like as a culture work like could be at the top of this pyramid now right um and so basically oh sorry you were saying yeah, so um, in this article, this one, the first one I I mentioned, he basically was saying how, like, when kids are younger, a lot of adults or people will ask them, what do you want to be when you're older? And he was saying this is, and I didn't realize this, but basically he was saying this is such a toxic question to ask because you're putting such tremendous pressure on so people who are so young and you're forcing them to define their life in terms of one parameter, work. And so he was saying this is dangerous because what happens if you grow up and you get a job and it's not completely satisfying? And then you think, okay, there's this, this is a problem that it's not completely satisfying because that's the way you define yourself, even though it's fine for something to not be completely satisfying. But then you think this is a problem. I have to leave this field. And so like you have this ingratitude and like this like restlessness because you define yourself in terms of one parameter and it's like, you put so much pressure on something that really by its nature is kind of unstable, right? Like work, it's kind of an unstable way to define yourself, right? Because one week your boss could be really like friendly and helpful. Another week you could get like a new employee who's like the worst human being you've ever met. Like that's not a great way, like for people, I, my, my, my opinion, right? To, to like, that's not a great, uh, a way to define yourself, like in terms of work, because it's like, if it goes wrong, which it very easily can, then like you're lost and you feel this emotional, uh, I guess, pain from something that really shouldn't have been given that much value to begin with. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I think that in, we are brought up in a capitalist culture where work is at the center of the capitalist universe. And so you are kind of like employment determines your place within this capital cast where you're either useful or not useful, part of the conversation or irrelevant based on your employment status and furthermore, not just your employment status, but what kind of job you have. And I think that's completely antithetical to the belief that God created us uniquely and as an important part of society. Nobody's cre- created irrelevant and and for no purpose. And and so having faith really, I mean, not I would say grounded me, but I wasn't even Subhanallah. I wasn't even grounded enough in my religion to be able to say that my worth comes from outside of my employment because yeah, I, it yeah. felt. Because I was so ingrained, and especially in New York, where everyone's constantly running, and they're running, you know, like, towards things, like, either whatever their gig is, or or um, it, it's some type of capitalist venture. And it to be outside of it feels really, I guess, I don't know, isolating, and, and it's, it's hard. It's not, it's, it's not normal. Um, and that's not the normal that we should be like that we should hold ourselves to. And so I had to unlearn throughout this 
throughout this more than almost more than way more than eight month journey um, to disassociate my self worth with employment and not put myself in this capitalist caste system and remember and really like let it sink in that my worth is based on what I can is is based on the fact that I exist and that purposeful work is what you can do where you are within your sphere of influence and that that is the work that matters it the work that matters is the work that you're doing repairing relationships within your family just being a good human being picking up trash like just read even reading a book to make yourself more knowledgeable about something that is that that is the work that matters because that's making the world a better place and that's you know you following your passions whether it comes in the form of employment or not, is what you're meant to be doing and doing it in the pleasure of God so that it can have a good impact on everyone and be wholesome and ethical. Um, that's that's what matters. And so I had to redefine, like really let it sink in because I thought I knew that, but I but I knew the way that I was feeling, how down I was feeling about myself that and how embarrassed I felt about myself that I like in conversations I didn't want to say I was employed so I've been saying I'm a recent graduate but you know I'm not a recent graduate it's been almost a year um, yeah, yeah. you like have to give yourself some type of title and that's that it is I think it is toxic um and so now when I ask people when I am introduced to people or I'm introducing myself to people I ask them, like, what interests you? Because that doesn't, you know, they could say, oh, I'm interested in in, um, in in engineering, and then they could talk about their job, or they can say they're interested in, you know, in, in sewing, and that's something that's not, they're not doing for monetary gain, but is having a huge impact, and, and if you trace it far back enough, uh, has an impact on climate change. So I think everything that we do, uh, it can can be purposeful without it being employment. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say that's a long-winded answer to I'm not sure answering your question. No, I think that's um, like perfectly answered my question because I completely was resonating with so many things that you were saying even how you said at the end that now when you introduce yourself to someone or you try to strike a conversation with someone, you don't ask, oh, what do you do? What's your job? How's work? Like you ask, what are you interested in? Right. Because you open it up and you make it like more inclusive. Right. Like not everyone's employed. Not everyone likes their job. Right. Not everyone wants to talk about work when they're not at work. Like you make you, it's, and people are multifaceted. Like they yeah. like more than one thing. They don't just exactly. Have- yeah um so like i completely completely resonate with that because like me personally like i'm someone that like uh like i come from an ivy league school princeton or um also penn but like princeton was my undergrad and so some people in my life like they'll use that to introduce me to new people and like i've come to the point where i hate it so much because it's like you're reducing me to something that i don't even one, I won't say that I don't even like, but that I don't feel that level of like, 
Like, I feel like there's other aspects of me that are more valuable. And the fact that you're using that to introduce me to someone shows me like, that's what you, that's why you think I'm valuable in your life. That's, that's what you yeah. think is like important about me or like useful about me or good about me. Like not my, you know, interest or my behavior or like my, you know, uh, character or, you know, my contributions to your life or our relationship. Like the thing that you think is valuable is the, the school that I went to. And that's the first thing you're using to, to create a relationship with uh, someone that I, I don't even know. Like, and so like what you were saying about how it's such a toxic and even weird, like what you were saying about how you'll ask now, what are you interested in? I feel like that's such a, that's so much more sane. Like that's so much more, you know, um, socially acceptable and so much more inclusive and like, pr- uh, you know, productive, a question to ask than, Oh, what do you do? Or like, cause then you're defining that person in terms of one parameter. And it's like, what if they don't define themselves like that? Like, what if I don't define myself as a Princeton student? What if I don't even like Princeton? Like, how, did you consider that? Like, <laughs> so, you know, and it, and it reinforces these, like, all be introduced as well as like oh she worked at the UN and she traveled through the office and it just like reinforces this high standard of yeah. of I guess just of worth like you were worth these things that have the highest standards that will make you look the look better and it's not about like our connection with people shouldn't be about like looking better and like beating the other one to whatever high status in society there is, but like what we can offer each other to help each other grow. And that doesn't come out of seeing where we're employed and, and where we went to school. Exactly. I mean, I feel like it's not that someone can't find, you know, a sense of meaning or purpose in their work or, you know, from having gone to school and having received an education, right? It's not that... Because those are really valuable things. Yeah, exactly. But it's just like the the this like strain in the culture where it's, it's being put on such a high pedestal and it's such an imperfect, like unstable thing to begin with that like even the American Psychological Association, like they recently did a study where they looked at like the millennial, not like the millennial generation and older generations and they found like the millennial generation has the highest um, prevalence of perfectionism, like expecting ourselves to be perfect and then ex- others expecting us to be perfect. Like we have the highest sort of like um, numbers regarding those parameters. And I just found that like so remarkable because it even speaks to this like thing that we're discussing where people will like look at us or look at people like us. And because we have an education or, you know, for example, the UN or Iraq or Princeton or NYU, like they'll look and have these like names in their head and automatically have these expectations. And I feel like some millennials or even really anyone, it's like because as a group we're so used to performing, like being high achievers and overperforming or performing well to like be in a status of unemployment or to be in a status of like exploration or like, you know, non-traditional work or an alternative path, maybe not of to be in a status of, 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 you know, not having gone to college. Maybe like there's some people who choose not to go to college because they don't want to 
incur that level of debt or incur they feel they can you know learn independently or they want to you know take an alternative path in life like i feel like all these expectations that are put on people who like don't follow this like perfect you know <laughs> college house marriage nine to five route i feel it's 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 inherently flawed because these this is not a a, a stable source of fulfillment so like why should we be using that as like a parameter by which to judge people's level of like contribution to society and like you know meaning meaning meaningfulness in life you know yeah yeah exactly i think it really it just it it really distorts it and it it puts so much pressure and what i love about the the other thing I really love about studying, having studied climate change, is that I understand these larger systems and I see how much everyone's little action can make an impact, even though it doesn't make a huge impact. Like, even, even though little individual actions don't make the kind of really big impact that we need to address the crisis that is climate change as soon as it needs to be, it still doesn't lessen the impact. I feel like I just went in a circle. What I want to say <laughs> is that you can you cannot be in the position that you want to be or or you can not be in a like an employment situation in which in which you have a um I guess work that is directly related and have it still be related just by you knowing about it and doing something in your area. And so it's so meaningful work is so much more accessible than we make it seem. Like we're told to follow our passions and find a place where passion work combine and and even that I find problematic because you're in this constant search for for that one meaningful position that's gonna that like defines you and um it's like your nine to five is everything and you have to find something that completely matches who you are and I don't think personally I don't think that's possible um and I I think that just puts unfair expectations on on it's not even unfair expectations it limits your impact because in every sphere of life you can make it meaningful and it can have an impact. It's just about being able to see it with that perspective. And we're not given that perspective. We're given a a very capitalist perspective that also tries to fill that void of meaning that science can't answer, that economics can't answer either. Um, So in in trying to create that meaning within this system, they're ha- it's having disastrous effects on our mental health and psyche. Um, and it doesn't need to if we just disassociate them and have a, a more open attitude towards towards work and towards purpose and um, and meaning and what meaningful work means, which is doing the best that you can where you are within your community of impact and seeing that as 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 meaningful yeah i mean i think that's so powerful because 
I remember listening to your the other um, podcast that you were on where you're describing, you know, how you um, sort of your journey as a Khalifa, basically. Right. And I was thinking like after that, listening to that, I was so invigorated. I was like, OK, I'm going to stop using plastic. I'm going to you know, what I mean, like it, it opened up a new world like through which I could manifest change. And it was so invigorating, not just because of the potential impact on the environment and the world around me, but just like as an individual, I felt like a sense of control, a sense of power. Like I'm going to do this. It's going to have an effect. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like that's, uh, it may sound kind of selfish, but that's kind of one reason I like sustainability and sort of like, you know, pursuing ethical fashion or ethical, um, you know, alternatives because sustainable alternatives, because I feel like, okay, I'm affecting something by my existence. And by doing this, I'm having an effect and it doesn't have to do with like the job that I hate or like, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to do with like classes or things that are just like, um, so yeah, I found that really, really like what you said about how we can, we can open up new spheres um through which to find meaning like it doesn't have to be limited to a professional sphere because that that is in itself can be so fraught like how long will it take you to find a job after graduating like um so even um i wanted to ask you you said one of the things you learned when you were doing your master's is to one of your pieces of advice would be to start looking for a job after or like I think you said within the first year or after the first year yeah (laughs) yeah I would I would start um I would have I should have the first thing I should have done is bring down my values like really sat in a quiet place gave myself time to think of my non-negotiables and not in in an idealistic way because I focused very much internationally and had this very idealistic vision of me traveling throughout North Africa and the Middle East helping with climate resilience. And and in the end, I realized that I could not live without my... It's not that I can't live without my husband, alhamdulillah. If Allah tests me that way, I hope I will be persevered. But while he is living, I want to be close to him, and I want to be close to my family, and that's what that means. And I don't have to... I don't... I don't have to, I shouldn't have to sacrifice that because in order to go somewhere else to do something that's meaningful to me, there's um, the amazing thing about working on climate change is that change is needed everywhere. Um, and so I don't, I don't have to go overseas to do that. And I realize that that's one of my core values, that that's what I need to be happy. Um, so I, I need to recognize that first, and I have to let that guide my my decisions about where I'm going to apply for jobs and things like that. So I wish I ha- I would have been honest with myself sooner um, and pursued opportunities that would have helped me, say, get a job in Orange County versus in New York City um, and done that networking and things like that closer to home um and and so after writing down a list of very realistic things that are non-negotiable to you just as a person like not not even as a job just as a person what you need to be happy and to be healthy um 
then start looking for a job and and exploring the different positions. But you can explore positions while applying, like just just having a list and just making it, even if you don't apply to it, just start getting yourself used to making a list of places and looking at companies and making alerts for them, um, having a separate email where you just have alerts for jobs of companies that you really like and exploring that because then later on when you're writing a cover letter, you can say, hey, I saw you years ago in my graduate program and I liked you because of this and this and I had my eye on you and I'm so happy that this position um, opened because, I, you know, I, I have this history of getting to know your organization. And having done that early on so you understand geographically where there are opportunities professionally where there are, are opportunities because you could be studying an area that while it's very interesting to you doesn't doesn't have many employment opportunities and if you're not like me where you have a husband that has a high paying job and and parents who paid for their graduate program which I'm so grateful for and has allowed me this opportunity of self discovery and questioning that I don't think I would have gotten if I was if I like had needed to pay debts right away um, or couldn't live without a job because um, I feel like that's the situation for most people and so and so I would even more recommend like looking at jobs first year of graduate program and being real really realistic about the opportunities that there are in that field because you can still you can still learn about something that interests you through reading, through books, through extracurricular things, but you're paying for you're paying a lot of money for an education and you want to make sure you have not just hard skills but also relevant classes and and teachers that are actually gonna actually care, not just have the accolades and you know the high position names and stuff, but because you can have teachers that have a huge network but they won't share their network with you. So knowing who those teachers are and what kind of opportunities they present and just being very, very selfish about the money that you're spending on your education, not letting it go by just on classes that interest you, but like classes that are going to get you your money back because you are paying. So until there's free public education, <laughs> um, being very, very selfish about that education about the money that you're putting in and making sure that it's going to come back because people are struggling and it's not fair. Um, yeah, so to balance out my conversation about <laughs> meaningful work is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like that's excellent advice. Um, so I guess what I wanted to touch on finally is sort of you... I mean, I, I heard you say in that episode with um, Suhaib Webb that you don't like labels like environmentalist or green. So how would I, like, describe what you're pursuing? Yeah. Um, so I guess I don't really have a term for it either. I think the best term is, is as a journey of a Khalifa, and I think that's not specific to me. That should be specific to everyone. That should be in general to everyone um, because we are all khulafa and we don't take that term 
seriously because we've only heard it referred to with leaders, like Islamic political leaders. And I think if we took that term and really owned it, then it would give us so much power that we would perceive this new power within us. And my, I don't, I don't have, I don't have professional goals. I just want to do meaningful work that will, um, that not, not just helps the planet, but brings everything in line. And because this, this world is not everything, um, and it's going to go past no matter what we do, but we have an opportunity to do so much good and um, to cultivate something really beautiful together. And I want to be a part of that. And I know that I have things to contribute um, into creating that really beautiful world that already exists but can become more beautiful by all our, by all our parts coming together. Um, and my goal, I think, that stands, I think everything pretty holistically is to live a life of zuhud so that I'm not attached to any false false um definition of worth that I'm not I'm not attached to this world that tells us that we need to buy and consume and and look a certain way and and have one type of professional career and be a boss lady or whatever it is but to attach my heart to what is good for me and for the world in a in a wholesome way. Zuhud basically means to live lightly, but not in our impact, just in our, I guess, our bad impact. It's to make sure that we're lessening that and creating more of a good impact and leaving behind good things and living a life that's not chained and enslaved to one certain idea about who we should be, but to be our very best selves and to, and to develop and grow so that we can we can be our very best selves. And I think that's, that's what Zuhud is. And that's my goal. And I think that spans everything professionally. So when I do get a job, inshallah, that I will not be attached to the job as a title, but attached to the work that I'm doing and the good that will come from it. And letting that be open to whatever God puts in my way, in my path, and and embracing it gratefully, and letting it and letting it connect more dots, and helping me to make a a bigger impact, inshallah. Yeah, I mean, for those who don't understand zuhud, so would you say, Mona, that like zero waste and I don't even know all the terms because I'm not like <laughs> I'm a novice <laughs> but so for example zero waste right you would say that's like an embodiment of Zahud right living lightly right yes yes zero waste is definitely embodiment of Zahud but it's also an industrial term that is supposed to inspire us and inspire designers and companies <laughs> companies to um embrace biomimicry, so learning from nature on how to produce without waste. And waste is just one aspect of of our being. It's not it's not a holistic term at all. So that's why I don't like using zero waste is because it's not holistic enough. It was never meant to be holistic. It's just about our waste. But it does it does lead us to ask bigger questions about our impact 
and its connection to larger systems. So it's useful, but it's not it's not holistic, and it's not. I think any 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 term that doesn't center you in who you are in a correct in a, in a correct understanding of who who you are and why you're on this earth will not be holistic enough because it needs to be really motivated from from why you're here, and that that will really guide what kind of impact you have and in what sphere of society you have it. So it, it's not, I don't, I appreciate it, and I learned a lot from the terminology, and I still use it sometimes because it's easier for people to understand and explain them. It's all under, like where I've gotten to understanding. But, yeah, I think there are more holistic terms out there, terms out there, which is why I use Khalifa. And I hope that other people will start thinking of themselves as Khalifa, as successors of previous of their ancestors, and the and leaving something that somebody else will be a successor to, and to remember that covenant that we made and that promise and the trust that was that was given to us, and respect it and cultivate it, and make it more beautiful than what was left with us. Yeah. Would you say that, like, I guess the listener may be wondering sort of what your lifestyle is as someone who, I guess you could define as a climate change activist, even though you may not like the label. Like, I guess someone may be wondering, what exactly does your lifestyle look like? So zero waste could be, is that one component? What are the other components that make it more holistic? Is the focus, so zero waste focus on a product, like, not not producing anything that goes to a landfill but that can break down. And so it's very much an industrial design concept. But my life, like that that part of my life, I I feel like I kind of cemented when I when I first started in Ramadan, within like a year, those things just became habits that they're just the way I live my life. So I just I just don't buy a sponge. That's not that's not what I go for anymore. I I just get I get a loofah. I am trying to grow it now, but otherwise I can get it. I I just buy one soap bar that doesn't have palm oil. It's olive oil based, and I use it for everything: my body, the washing the dishes, and it, I've just simplified my life in a way where I don't even think about these things anymore. And the more important things I feel like I'm doing. Are, are repairing relationships within families, being there for friends, like going out and meeting my neighbors and understanding their needs and just the community around me, understanding, learning about plants and how they're, how they're dealing with the changing climate and who they are and what they offer. And animals, learning about animals too, those are all really important aspects of being a, a holistic being in this world. That's not really encompassed by zero waste, but zero waste is more, it just helps you, honestly, it helps you simplify your life in so many ways. And not just that, but really develop self-discipline, which I love. I love that you can, I love that you can be, in your ordinary day, you can be struggling and developing. Like you're, I mean, there's already so much that we struggle from, but to have these little opportunities for self-development 
through a little bit of sacrifice here and there of not giving in to convenience does so much for one's development. And uh, it's just a daily practice that, that I mean, it's just a way of life. Like once, once you buy a bar of soap, you don't really have to buy a bar of soap again unless you want to learn how to make it, which is a whole other adventure. But, yeah, there was really just simplified my life in ways that I don't have to, I, I don't feel like my lifestyle is a benefit rather than something that harms others. And that allows me to move to the next stage where I can get to know others and and benefit them in other ways. Yeah, I mean, so how would you say that for someone who, for example, may not be practicing sort of this lifestyle, right? Zero waste or sustainable or whatever term uh, someone could use. Like, how would you, how would you relate to them the the impact they're having on individual lives, right? Because they may be thinking of it in terms of like the environment, trees, grass. Who cares? Like, how would you how would you make it like? How would you connect it back to societies and communities, right? Mm-hmm. So I first came upon Zero Waste through a video of Lauren Singer. Her handle is Trash is for Tossers. And I saw a video of her on Facebook about where plastic came from. And before then, I had been, well, I am still a staunch, what do you call it, protester of the Iraq War, because that was the war that happened during my lifetime that I did not, could not believe happened. And that was very, there was very definitive experiences that I had that really impacted me and, and led me to, I guess, the hatred of oil when I understood that, that those wars opened up oil markets for the United States and that we were consuming that oil and thus in some small way supporting this war um, and the destruction that's happened in the aftermath. Uh, and I got to go to Iraq and see a lot of that and just broke my heart all over again. But um, I, so when I learned that plastic came from oil, I saw this connection of oil, plastic, we're buying plastic, plastic is made out of oil, oil was forcibly drawn from lands where they had to invade and kill thousands of people in order to get it. So I am in some way through this plastic hurting my brethren in another country. And um, that's what led me really to cut plastic out of my life is when I realized that this material is made out of crude oil um, I wanted to be as far away from it as possible. but And then on the other side, so that's production side, then when you go to the disposal side where it's being thrown out, um, there's a huge garbage patch in the ocean. Um, microplastics are affecting the fish and the ocean ecosystems. It's not the worst thing that's happening to the oceans, industrial fishing, so the fish that we're eating just in a grocery market is the worst thing that's happening to the ocean, but also climate change um, is causing coral bleaching. Anyways, so in terms of our lifestyles, 
there are other things other than just the things we buy, like walking. Walking and taking public transit versus driving is a, is something a climate activist would do because they want to reduce the carbon impact. So when you're looking at carbon dioxide, it's one of many greenhouse gases that's causing warming of the climate. And warming of the climate means that we're having hotter summers, we're having fires, and it's disrupting the weather system so that there's cyclones happening every other week in another country is completely destroying the land and uh, the population that depends on that land. So there are far-reaching impacts to the ways that we are releasing these greenhouse gases. And carbon dioxide is just one greenhouse gas. There's also methane, which is, I think it's 40 times worse than carbon dioxide. And that comes from some um, concentrated animal farm or farming operations, CAFOs, um, that are growing, that are raising, not even raising, that are just forced feeding um, and terribly treating the animals that we eat. So our diet, the, what, what we eat, how we get places, what we buy, those are all having an impact on our weather system and uh, on the lives of other beings around us, including our own including humans. Um, so when these weather systems change, it changes life on the planet for everyone in very disastrous ways. Like my farm, my, my teacher, Farmer Rishi, says we, we're not against climate change. We're just against change towards the worst. So now we want to change the climate towards balance. And it's out of balance right now because we're pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and they're trapping in the sun. So we need to rebalance and that includes and that requires us to be balanced within ourselves and look at our lifestyle and balance our lifestyle and um and then go from there. Yeah, I mean that's a yeah, I couldn't yeah, that's I couldn't I was gonna say I couldn't describe it better myself, but then that's implying that like I even know what I like <laughs> so um, but yeah, so I guess the last question I wanted to ask is, so you said that, um, what was sort of the catalyst for you was this video you saw on Facebook by Lauren Singer. Um, and you saw that she had, you know, she leads a zero waste lifestyle. And so you made the connection with plastic and the Iraq war and the devastation that had on human beings. And you realized plastic isn't that necessary to function as a as a person um and so would you say that um because there's research showing that for people to break bad habits or really a habit is defined as a trigger a behavior and then a reward right and the thing with making changes in your life to impact climate change is that i mean i think you wouldn't see the the large scale impact right of your individual changes in behavior right and so would you say that that is sort of i mean how would you like what would you recommend to someone who wants to begin embarking on this journey but like could become discouraged because they're making these changes but other people around them are making these changes and they may feel like it's futile do you know what i'm saying 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have somebody who's looking to who, who who hears this and feels inspired and wants to follow it and wants to you know start being holistically a benefit to everyone um, is to really understand the why. Like sit down with yourself and just and and make that commitment because it's not it's it's a matter of convenience. This these products that we're using they've been put in the supermarket for us to buy and those people that are putting them in the supermarket for us to buy have put hundreds of thousands of dollars to market them and also to lobby to make sure that they're the only ones that are in the supermarket. So there are some things that you just can't avoid and it's not your fault but you have to be able to move off from this idea of perfection and to understand that it's so much larger than the things we buy, but that but that we should do any little good that we can. In general, in in life in general, we should do any little good that opportun that presents itself, we should take that opportunity and do it. So the parts that you can do, you should feel you should feel responsible to do it to do it. It's not about feeling good. It's about you're responsible to take upon this action where it's presented to you. If it's possible, then you should do it and it's going to help you. It's going to help your your um, self-discipline and that's going to help in so many other ways. Um, and so one thing that I think is more after switching out your water bottle to um, a reusable water bottle uh, or water container, I think the second easiest thing is really soap. Like instead of buying that pumping, the what is it, plastic pump thing for the soap, for washing your hands um, and for your dishes, like just finding, just spending the time to see where you can find an olive oil-based, not palm oil, palm oil-free uh, soap bar, and you can just try it out on things and realize that it's just as effective as these things are marketing for you and you're going to be saving money, you're going to be helping the environment, you're, it's just going to it's going to simplify your life. So finding things that check all those boxes are really nice, but you can't depend on them and you shouldn't depend on them and you shouldn't expect them either um, because it's not that thousands of dollars are being spent to make sure that you buy these certain products and you live this certain lifestyle and that you want this certain lifestyle, um, which is a very consumer-based lifestyle that also defines you as a consumer. So it's, it's a whole perspective shift, and that's going to take a while, but just to, you know, get at it little by little by making a commitment within yourself to just do good when it's possible and when the opportunity presents itself and not be lazy or give in to convenience with it. Because there's a difference between laziness and accessibility. There's plenty of people that could walk to their to walk to the library versus drive to the library, but they don't do it because it's not convenient. But it but that's a good that has presented itself and so you should take it. And and it and any good that you do will have a benefit for you as well. Not not just you but everyone. Um that's my little pet talk right there. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like even one thing is that plastic, you were mentioning, or I think it was mentioned in that other episode, has hormone disruptors. And I even learned that it, like cancer, ADHD, autism, diabetes, these are all serious risks that are presented from using plastic. Um, So even what you were saying about how it can have an individual benefit, like if you just, someone who is sort of hesitant or not sure about how to go, um, go about this, if they realize that I may not see the world earth, planet earth impact now, but I can at least appreciate that like on my own biology, on my own physiology, like it's having an effect, a beneficial effect on my own neuro- neurology <laughs> of my, 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 you know, exist of my body. Um, because they were saying like, there's neurological risks. And I was like, my brain is affected. Like the, the neurology is affected from plastic. Um, yeah. but even what you were saying about, I loved what you said when you said, um, it's not about feeling good. It's about being responsible. And I feel like that's even what this one psychologist, um, Judson Brewer, Brewer, he was saying that like when you are faced with returning like to a bad habit, if you at the moment of the trigger or the urge, right, the moment the moment of, oh, this is more convenient or the moment of this is easier. If you are curiously aware, th- these were the words that he used, like if you really think like sort of have an outer body experience about like why you're about to do what you're about to do and really sit and reflect and be introspective about what is happening. It gives you the opportunity to break free from that habit loop. And this is how he, you know, believes people break bad habits and form good habits is like being aware, like really thoughtful and reflective about what exactly is happening. And so what you were saying about, it's not about feeling good. It's not about an emotive response. It's about like, your responsibility, like the opportunity presented itself to you. So take it to have an impact on the world around you and yourself. Yep, exactly. It's not, and that's why you have, like you're, you have to open your eyes first, but don't open your eyes like when you're in the middle of a target aisle or something, because yeah. everything is going to, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blind you and it's yeah, going to be really hard. So you have to know from before and you have to know inside yourself this is not something I want to engage in, not engage in, so I'm just going to turn away. And those successive no's are, what, I mean, I'm saying no right now, but it actually is a yes because it presents you with more opportunities later. But anyways, um, those successive no's will strengthen your resolve and your will and um, and, and your, your the discipline within yourself to release yourself from those from literally the chains of consumerism because everything is trying to sell itself to you and knowing within your heart, like, and, and knowing within your brain more that these are the reasons why it's not okay. And these are the long-term effects of, of this action. I'm going to have the opposite and beneficial reaction or yet response is, is, is important to know that from before and to like keep yourself from those situations and just turn away like immediately. I I don't, it is so rare that I go to a normal grocery store or Target or anything like that. And that, because it, it's just like way too much temptation 
Um, and I think after these four years, I've been able to really, like, develop this self-discipline where I am, have a very strong sense of responsibility and that that helps me. But some people are, it's not, it's just not accessible to some, other options are not accessible to some people. So I think the struggle is harder. Um, but, yeah, also I wanted to say about the cancer agents, that's not, it's not present in all plastics, but um, in order to understand which plastics they are present in is a whole other scientific endeavor. Um, so it's just like good to stay clear away. But it doesn't mean that, I think I've developed a lot in that I don't, I don't hate plastics the way that I used to, or I don't hate oil the way that I used to, because um, I had a very strong emotional visceral response because of my experiences um, due to the Iraq war. But now I have a more balanced approach where I understand that there are uses that are, that have really been indispensable to the development of a society and are good, um, but that everything needs to be in balance and that we're not in balance. And our lifestyles, the way we live it with all this plastic is not in balance. So it's not about hating plastic or that plastic is completely evil. It's just that our lifestyle and the way it's been sold to us, it's not in balance and we need to bring it back to balance in order for the entire ecosystem to be in balance because we are a part of this ecosystem and if we're not in balance, then the ecosystem is not in balance either. And that has long-standing, long-term effects on our way of life and our, I mean, even our survival on this planet. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad even that you said not all plastics have that because I'm looking at like my microphone, my phone, my laptop, like all these plastic yeah. objects around me and I'm like freaking out internally, but obviously yeah. <laughs> I can't like say anything because you're speaking. So when you said, oh, it's not all of them, I'm like, thank God. Like, yeah. Um, so I'm just like, yeah, that would be, I don't even know how I would face I'm someone like, if someone says that to me, I literally will look around at all of my life and be like, okay, everything around me is dangerous. What do I do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's really paralyzing. And so I, I don't think we should like, that's not something we should spread or like talk, use as our main talking point when we're talking about plastics, because it's not, plastic is not evil. Our consumption is what's being evil right now. It's our our use of these materials. It's these these resources have been put on Earth and they're for the use of all of us in balance. And and so we just need to think of it like that and understand. Okay, where am I contributing to imbalance and how can I bring balance back? And our our actions bring balance back. Like it it has a Whenever we're staying away from a negative thing, we are we are contributing to the positive rebalancing. I know I'm using that word a lot. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's just that that's how it is, and we have this opportunity to cultivate. Like, our, it's not just it's not just about bringing balance. It's about cultivating something more beautiful, more that's better. And we 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 have the power to do that through our individual actions. And by individual actions, I also mean like calling our representatives and typing up letters to corporations. Those are also individual actions that are hugely needed. 
Um, so when we see something wrong, like the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad you do something with your hands, you do something with your mouth, and then if you can't do something at all, then you at least hate it in your heart and and make sure that your heart is purified and rectified and that it understands where the balance should be. So you write the letter, you don't you don't buy the plastic product, you buy a soap bar instead and and you speak about it and you do what you can and that's all you can do and that is enough. To do what you can is enough. And it yeah. was needed. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's so it sounds maybe cliche to some people, but if you think about it, if all of us took the stance, this defeatist, fatalistic stance of my actions are so small, what effect will that have? If we all took that stance, we would be in the exact same position or even worse, right? So something's got to give. Like some group of people somewhere have to have the courage and, I don't know, appreciation of whatever small acts they can do uh, for the world to move forward in any way. Yeah, and that includes, sorry, I have to mention this, but that includes us speaking about the top 10% like we're going to make it more inclusive of the top 10% to the top 1% of people that are, that are causing the most damage, whose consumption, whose accumulation of wealth has led to such insane consumption and support of such of a culture of consumption that is causing the majority of these problems. So it's also about us speaking out against that and, and not supporting a culture, that culture that they've created in order for them to accumulate more wealth, but, but presenting a counterculture that is imbalanced and, and, you know, putting restraints on people like that. I definitely support Elizabeth Warren's tax. <laughs> We're going to get political to yeah, let yeah, now. I'm, cause... <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm with you on that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's really important. We're we're only at fault as much as we haven't done within our ability, and and nothing more. If if all you can do is live the way that you are doing, and uh, help your family, and and what you are doing right now is helping your family, you're contributing to societal stabilization, to to more productive. Um, I don't like that word. More more people who are in tune to their meaning and and can 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 give more of themselves and that will help the earth as well but if you're not if you're not flying planes all over the world like it doesn't that doesn't that's not something you should be concerned about it's so that's the type of things that other people that are doing that are concerned about and so like there's some people that don't have to do anything because they're already living the best lives that they can, and that's all we should expect of them. But we should always expect more, like we should always strive to be better versions of ourselves, and those better versions of ourselves are going to help the entire ecosystem because we're a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a great note to end this on. I the only thing I would say is. I feel that this whole episode, you know how like there's this traditional advice about conversations like, oh, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about <laughs> like even in My Fair Lady. Yeah. 
now. Yeah, I know. Even in My Fair Lady, Henry Higgins, um, he said, like, stick to the weather and your health when you're talking, when you're having conversation. But even with climate change and, like, anti-vaxxing, like, even those topics, this one radio host, Celeste um, Headley, she was saying, even those topics, the weather and your health aren't safe anymore. Like, there are so many issues now that have a strain of, like, science or politics or religion and different viewpoints implicated in them so really it's inevitable that (laughs) (laughs) it ended up like this yes um but yeah thank you so much for coming on skivio radio (laughs) thank you so much for inviting me i had a, a great conversation i think this was really fruitful we went through a lot of things thank you yeah um so i mean the fast is still going, but, you know, I'll get back to you. What were you saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'll get back to you with, like, I have to, um, this uh, this won't take long to edit, so I can get back to you, like, within a week. And you oh, don't worry about it. Like, whenever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I could even release it tomorrow because I honestly don't think it would require, like, any editing whatsoever. Um, cause usually my shows like require like days of editing, but this was so much like so fluid that I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad. I feel like I realized in a way that the audience wasn't a hundred percent Muslim. I think it's a combination of Muslims and non-Muslims. There's no way for me to really know, but I pretty, I'm pretty sure it's a combination but I think that the people who are non-Muslim who listen are at least, like, open to Muslimness just because, like, for example, the 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 image for my podcast is of a Muslim woman. So, like, if they really don't, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If they're really yeah. against Muslims and Islam, like, they wouldn't even think to open, like, listen to anything, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still have to develop that kind of, I've been offered to teach classes, and I, I like, I can't get. It's so hard for me to to take away that faith aspect because so much of the terminology that so much of what I understand about sustainability and the way we need to respond to climate change is rooted in Islamic terminology, and I just I don't know how else to explain it in the way that I want to convey without using those terms and I don't know if that's like something I should bring into other I mean that is something I want to bring into other spaces but how much of it is necessary and and in what ways should I explain it or still things I'm trying to figure out so I'm so I (laughs) wanted to say more but I was trying to like keep it to words that are understandable yeah yeah i mean i feel like you you struck a good balance i feel like the terms that maybe aren't familiar you made sure to explain it like immediately after you know mentioning those terms so i think i think it was a pretty good balance i mean yeah i see i see your dilemma though like so much of it is rooted in islamic terminology that like to a, a lay audience or like people who are not it's hard to sort of navigate. Yeah, I wish I had advice, but I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, 
expressing that it's like it's still a hard thing for me. Um, but I think it's a, it's a good problem. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because at the minimum, it's it's sort of like a form of dawa, right? Like it's sort of like sort of forcing people who aren't Muslim to think about Muslimness, right? Like even I remember reading this article about how it, the title was Islam is the last threat to the hegemonic monoculture like basically saying like in society to be diverse now is like problematic like you have to conform and so like Islam is like the last threat to this because Islam has so many different cultures and foods and clothing and languages and and so like the article basically was saying like this religion is the really the last legitimate threat to this like pressure to conform to like this like standard of behavior or standard of living or standard of thinking or well what is that article can you find it and send it yeah i can i have it on my phone i think so i can just dm it to you and like yeah it was a powerful article so i think you'd actually really like it i think yeah i think suhaib love would really oh he would love that yeah yeah he would love that you sent me this article um about post-modernism Postmodernism, how do you even say postmodernism? And um, it was saying how they're like, yeah, now diversity is, I guess, more more um, accepted, but as long as it comes in, yeah, like you were yeah. saying, a hegemonic form. So. It's okay as long as it doesn't threaten, like, this consumer culture and and the powers that be. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I'll definitely send that to you. I think, like, this was a really good conversation. Alhamdulillah. 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 Thanks. Thank yeah. you. You definitely led it in great ways. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I keep this, like, post-conversation bit in there? Because I kind of like, like, where it went also. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Wait, so I feel like I I talked a lot and I didn't get to know more. Wait, I was when you said that you studied science, that was surprising to me. <laughs> so I feel like we had a really long conversation and I don't know anything about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like the funny thing, so I guess about me is when I so I kind of have a similar background to you in that like my education up until college was in in areas in communities that didn't have a lot of money like public schooling and so once I got to co- in high school my self esteem was so horribly low that I was like I'm not gonna get into college no one's gonna want me this is impossible so like I applied to such a large number of schools even though I I really couldn't afford because you know the application fees and everything like that. Yeah. But luckily, Alhamdulillah, my father was like, no, don't worry about it. He was very much just like, it's like a small price to pay if you can get an education better than what you've, you know, like been receiving, right? And so the spring of senior year, I got all these yeses back and I was shocked because I'm just like, how is this happening? Like I was, you know how when you never imagined something could happen and it occurs and you're, you want to pinch yourself like, is this a real life? Like, (laughs) You know, is this real reality? Like, how is this even my own? Like, how is happening to me? You hear about it happening to other people, but then you're like, how is that? How, how you're just so confused. 
So then I had this issue of where do I go to school? I live in New Jersey. And so like Princeton was, it's still, cause I still live at, um, at home. So like Princeton's only like 20, 30 minutes from where I live, but I never wanted to go there because I was just, I don't want to go to college next to my, like where I live. Like I thought that was like, you know what I'm saying? I was one of those people who was like, oh, I want to go, I want to travel and ex- go far and like, et cetera. Right. Like I even wanted to go to college like you in New York city, because I was like, I was born in Manhattan. So I was like, okay, I want to go back there. New York is so vibrant and there's so many things to do and you can be independent and stuff like that. So I re- ironically, I ended up choosing Princeton anyway. I don't even know. <laughs> and that's really one of the most ironic moments of my life. I was striving so hard to like be not in New Jersey and then like ended up in New Jersey for like five years. Um, wow. Yeah. So like in college, my plan, like I said, was to major in English. Then I got interested in science through that book. And so I changed, I didn't even have to change my major. I was like at the moment of having to decide between English or even I was considering comparative literature because I was like interested in French and Arabic. So I was like, I want to look at literature from those regions like North Africans. So I was like, I'll do English or comparative literature. But then I was like, with science, I don't know if I'll ever if I'll ever get an opportunity to like work with these world class scientists and resources and laboratories and blah, blah, blah again. But I was like, with literature, theoretically, I could do that later in life if I still wanted to pursue that. That's how I switched to science. But then ironically, after graduating, I was like, oh, I don't like science anymore because of like animal rights and animal testing. And I don't know how I feel about this field that's so like entrenched in like, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of funny, my life, right? Like I was like, oh, English, then science, then not science. And now here I am. Now I teach at an Islamic school. I teach language arts, actually. So that's funny again, how I'm back in English. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like. I teach fourth graders. I was teaching high school and I still help with high school, but I teach fourth grade like language arts, reading and writing. And, and it's it was difficult at first. This is my first year of teaching like this past September. But now, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Like after graduating my first job, my professor, he was a science advisor for my thesis. He was like, oh, I read your thesis. It's amazing. And I was like, really? Because I thought it was garbage. But then he was like, can I hire you? And I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, at first, at first I, at first I didn't give him a response, but then I talked to my parents and they were like, what do you mean? You don't have a job lined up. Like call him back. (laughs) So then they were like, you don't have any prospects. Why would you not give a more positive response? So then I called him back. This was back when I defined myself in terms of work. I called him back and I was like, okay, or maybe I talked to him in person. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so like, I was with him in his lab for a year. Basically, I wrote like a book about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and the sense of smell and caffeine and all these scientific weird things. Yeah. And then after that, I went to like a post-bac pre-med program at UPenn because I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a doctor because I was doing like Parkinson's disease and like Alzheimer's and all this stuff. And then... Partway through that program, I was like, oh, I don't like medicine. I don't want to be a doctor. (laughs) So then I left that program. And then I was kind of like you, like sort of like, okay, what do I do now? Like not really any gainful, like, you know, not really any plans for life. And then from there, I think it was about a year later, I was in different positions and didn't stay in any of them. I mean, one of them I'm still with. I help people with developmental disabilities. So I help them with their services and stuff. But that's like a part-time thing. It was in this period of confusion. What do I do? 
that I was in the mustard one day and I saw like, you know how mustards have like, or massage have bulletin boards with flyers for stuff. The one that I sometimes go to had a flyer for like SAT tutoring. And I was like, great, I'm broke. Like I can do that. <laughs> and so like I, e- I, e- I emailed the, sc- the mustard, right? And the person was like, I also sent my score report and I have a perfect score on the SAT reading and the SAT essay. So like that person was like, oh, can you come in? And I was like, okay, great. Finally found some money. And then she was like, she's a principal because it also ha- it happens to be a school and also a mustard. And she was like, oh, can you be a language arts teacher, actually? Because we don't have, like... <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like, this literally is my life. I was like, I come in just to tutor, like, a couple hours on the weekend or something. And you're saying you want me to become a full-time language arts instructor. And, had yeah, I had such back and forth because I was just like... It was so weird. I even did Istikara, like, multiple times because I'm just like, I don't even know if this is a good idea for me because I was just like... Part of me was like, okay, I can give back to the community because they're like a new school, so they don't have a lot of resources. And a lot of Muslims are like immigrants, so they don't speak English well enough to teach it, you know, as an instructor. Part of me was like, I feel guilty to say no because it's like I've been given so much in my life. You know what I'm saying? I feel guilty to just be like, no, I'm not going to help you. But then part of me was just like, but I want to do like stuff. Like I want to pursue, because I'm very like, I'm very like, problem driven like I really like solving problems and like you know being innovative and thinking about things like that you know what I'm saying so I was like I I, I was torn between like should I try to find a career that will let me do that or should I do this and eventually you know ended up teaching started teaching there the beginning months were so difficult and horrible and I was just like why am I doing this (laughs) yeah it was so like but alhamdulillah alhamdulillah now like so many of them, I'm pretty sure all of them like love me and like accept me as family now. But like in the beginning, the beginning was so tumultuous. It was just like, what's going on? Like I'm new, like, you know, but yeah. So that's pretty much my life story. <laughs> no, that's not all of your life story, but that's, that's yeah, a yeah. pretty significant part of it. Yeah. Did you have to... um I like thought about teaching, but I have no idea what I would teach. But do you did you have to get uh, teaching credentials? Yeah, so it turns out for like, because this is a par- parochial, not for profit, private school. So like for public schools, you have to have creden- you have to have like an education degree, I believe. But for private schools in the United States, you don't actually need um, that level of certification. And so I guess just based on like my SAT scores, like how high I scored in those sections, she believed that I would not like ruin, (laughs) you know. um, So, yeah. And I guess because I already had been tutoring some students like on the side, um, like in language arts before that point, like, you know, elementary school and, you know, different subjects. So I guess from that, from those things, she felt like it would be a good, you know what I'm saying? Like it would be a good yeah, fit. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Wait, I had another question. What was my question? Um, um, wait for it. Wait for it. I forgot. I forgot my question. I would be a terrible podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have the same moment. I'm like, wait, what do I want to say again? I, like, I, hear something, and I'm like, oh, I want to ask questions yeah, about that, yeah. but I'm going to let you finish, and then I... Yeah. So now yeah. I'd like to stand as a podcast. So I don't think oh, great. Right.